know that Matt has emphasized every week the importance of knowing theology and how truth affects our lives, but this doctrine in particular, the doctrine of the church, is immediately practical because it dictates our practice. It tells us how we are to live. So there really, Lord willing, shouldn't be anybody leaving here this morning confused about how to apply these truths because these truths tell us how we are to live in the church. Let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to read verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Won't be expositing this, this text this morning, but just kind of using it as a launching pad to look at what the whole Bible has to say about the church. Ephesians 1, 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And here it is. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go ahead and pray and seek the Lord's help this morning. Father, we think of what was said of Christ, that zeal for your house consumed him. Lord, I pray that this morning we would see that passion, Lord, that we would see your passion for your people, and God, that zeal would be infectious, Lord, that we would catch that zeal, and we would would have a love and a, a conviction about the church. God, that affects our approach, that affects us this morning as we join your people. So God, come and help us hear and help us live these truths, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Ephesians 1 crescendos with this statement that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all, that the church is the fullness of God, and that's a big statement. And then later in chapter 3, verse 10 Paul says that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known in the heavenlies. So what we are talking about this morning is something that is dear to the heart of God. The the church is central in the plan and and purposes of God. As Pastor Peter likes to say, Genesis 1.26 is a, a purpose statement for the entire Bible, that God desires to have a people who would display His image. And, and that desire is fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, what is the church? Wayne Grudem writes that the church is the community of all true believers for all time. So one way that we could 
define the church is to say that it is the community of every person who has ever been purchased by Christ. Everyone who's been transferred out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light. It is every redeemed person who has ever lived or who ever will live. That, that's what Ephesians has in mind um, when, when he says that, that the church is the fullness of God. Or later in chapter 5 when he writes that, that Christ laid down his life for the church. He's not just talking about Lakeview Christian Center here, is he? No, he's talking about the church on a universal scale, dead or alive, in heaven or on earth, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We are part of the same church as the Apostle Paul, as Augustine, as Martin Luther, and even spanning both Testaments to include Abraham and Moses. It's what we might call the universal church. But, but that's not the only way the Bible talks about the church. There is the universal church, but there's also the local church. And much that the Bible has to say about the church simply wouldn't make sense unless there is a specific local congregation to which you and I belong. Matt has used the helpful illustration that your, your church must be MapQuestable. <laughs> you should be able to look it up on MapQuest. You know, it, it's a specific group of people that meet at a time and place and with leaders that have names. And we live in a day and age in which this is often called into question. Left and right, people are bashing Jesus' bride. And, and even on the shelves of, of Christian bookstores. So, there are several things that we need to consider this morning, such as, what is a local church? What is it like, and what does it do, according to the Bible? And are there alternatives? Are friends meeting at a coffee shop having church? Or, or what about five people in a, in a college dorm room for a Bible study? Or two businessmen on a golf course? Or, or what about the, the cyber church phenomenon? Is, is a group of Christians getting together in a chat room, is, is that a church? These are the kinds of issues that are raised in our day. So it's important for us to have a firm grasp on the Bible's teaching concerning the local church. And this morning we'll look at four things. Church membership, church leaders, church gathering, and church mission. So first, church membership. It is God's revealed will that every believer would be meaningfully joined to a biblically faithful local church. And let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. You won't necessarily turn to all these passages, but they're in your notes. Hebrews 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And, and right there, that requires the local church, right? I mean, I, I, can't, I can't stir up Martin Luther to love and good works. I can't even stir up John Piper to love and good works. I don't know these men. They're not, they're not around me. I need the local church. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The New Testament is filled with admonitions for the people of God to gather together in a certain way. And, and we'll look at what happens when they gather 
in a moment. But, but the point is that the Bible doesn't have a category for an independent Christian. In, in fact, most of the, of the books of the New Testament aren't written to Bob or Sue, but, but to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to local congregations. It's a, it's a basic assumption that believers would be living in a way that is connected to the people of God near them. And here in Hebrews 10, we see it's God's commandment for us. The other week I received a, a phone call that was a, a counseling situation and the man was, was struggling through a, a host of issues. There were relational difficulties and, and brokenness and he was experiencing significant temptations and patterns of sin and, and doubts as to whether he was even saved. And he said he hadn't been in church for years. And I said to him, you know, obviously right now you are, you're in a whirlwind. Things are spinning around you. A lot is happening for you. But if I could maybe help you sort through what I think the main need is here, it's that you're not in a local church. God's will for you is, is that you would be with other believers, people who can care for you, people who can pray for you, help you along, alongside of you, and you, you need to obey the Lord on this. Does local church membership matter to you? Is there a connection in your mind between your spiritual health and your involvement in the church? Peter Jeffrey writes, the closer you are to the Lord, the closer you will be to other believers. And, and since all you guys are here this morning, I, I, know, I know I'm preaching to the choir, right? <laughs> but but there, may, there may come a time when you will need a strong conviction concerning the doctrine of the church. Someone in the church hurts you deeply, some sort of something they say or some sort of experience that you have, it just cuts into your heart. Or church leaders make a decision you don't like. Or maybe life circumstances make participation in the church difficult. And, and at that time, you might be tempted to think, do I really need this? Is it really necessary? So it's important for us to have a grand vision for God's purpose in the church. And, and I hope that this morning we are built up in our trust in the Lord and our hope in the Lord for this. Let's talk briefly about formal church membership. We've seen that it's God's express will for us to be functional participants in a particular local church. Does that mean that I should be a formal member of that church? In a word, yes. <laughs> While we don't necessarily see roster, lips, roster lists typed out in Excel spreadsheets in the New Testament, we do see the, the teaching that the local church has members and that they are identifiable. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one... And has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So membership in the local church is a biblical idea. It's not something that's borrowed from the secular world. So when you hear the words church membership, what should come to mind are not images of a country club and with your ID badge to get into a meeting for the elite. No, when you hear church membership, you should think of the body of the crucified and risen Savior functioning through the lives of those He's redeemed as they gather together in His name. That's what church membership is about. And it's the understanding of Scripture that the members of a church are believers who are committed to one another, living a life consistent with the gospel. And another way to say that is that we believe in what's called regenerate church membership. To be a member of the church, as we've seen in in 1 Corinthians 12, is to be united with Christ by faith and for that union with Christ to be expressed by baptism and participation in the church. So we don't admit unbelievers to be members here. They're free to attend, free to participate. In fact, we'd love them to be here. But to be a member of the church means you've joined this new community that God is building with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. You see, church discipline presupposes church membership. We don't have a lot of time to talk about church discipline this morning. It's, it's been taught in other settings. I've got the back table there some copies of the church covenant, and you can look through that and see what that has to say about this. But, but church discipline is, is the process that Christ installed in Matthew 18 for caring for someone who professes to be a believer and yet lives in unrepentant sin. And, and that process might ultimately re- result in them needing to be considered no longer to be part of the church. And, and the reason why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5.13, that they need to remove the unrepentant man from among them is because he assumes church membership, right? You, you can't expel, expelling makes sense only if there's a visible belonging. You can't kick someone out if there isn't an in. So church membership is necessary for church discipline to take place. It, it's necessary if we are to be clear on whom we consider to be someone among us to whom we are committed in this kind of covenant relationship. And it's extremely important for church leaders. We'll see in the next section that leaders in the church will give an account to God one day for whom are those in their care. And so it's it's necessary for church leaders to have names, right? How can a shepherd care for the sheep if he has no idea who the sheep are. Mike McKinley tells of his time when he was was taken on as pastor of an old Baptist church that had a history that preceded him. And within the first few weeks of becoming pastor there, he, he, he noticed that there was this car that would come and park in the church parking lot every day at noon. And there was some guy in the car taking a nap. And this happened day after day. 
And so he decided to start up a conversation with him one day. And he went over there and introduced himself, started to talk to him. And he said, he was not particularly pleasant. In fact, after about five minutes of conversation, it was pretty obvious that he was a racist, had recently spent time in jail, and based on the smell, was a big fan of cheap bourbon. And so after some small talk, Mike told him that he was the pastor of the church and that he was free to use the church parking lot for naps if he wanted to. And the guy replied, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm a member of your church. Yeah, I was, I was baptized there when I was eight years old. Yep, I've been a member of Guilford for over 30 years. And so Mike writes, so here was a man who hadn't been inside our church building or any other, he said, for decades he didn't know there was a new pastor. He didn't even know the previous few pastors. It was pretty clear that he had absolutely no interest in attending a church service any time in the near future. Still, he considered himself a member of Guilford in good standing. He drove by the church building every day and thought, that's my church. He chose to take a nap in the church's parking lot every day because he had a sense of connection to Guilford. If this kind of conversation with John was an isolated incident, I might not think too much about it. But I started meeting more and more people around town who considered themselves members of Guilford in the grocery store, in my neighborhood, at the gas station, and so on. All of them had stories about being baptized or raising their children or having a wedding at the church. And they all thought of themselves as somehow part of the church. But none of them had been involved in the life of the church for years. And I had no idea if they were Christians or not. I had lots of questions. Did these people consider me their pastor? Hebrews 13, 17 indicates that I will give account to Jesus for the people in the church that I have shepherded. Were these people included? Did they take some kind of comfort from the fact that they were members at Guilford? Did they feel assured of their salvation because our church had their names on the rolls? We needed some way to help them know that they were not members at Guilford Baptist. They were not in any type of relationship with the congregation. So church membership is necessary so that church leaders will know for whom they will be accountable to God on the last day. And more important, church membership is a witness to the world. People who deny the gospel and live notoriously unholy lives and yet claim to be a member of the church, they, they do damage to our corporate witness. But a church that defines membership biblically and administers it faithfully, it honors Christ and it testifies to the transforming power of the gospel. Are you a member of a local church? If not, why not? Are you involved at this church and yet not a member or not pursuing membership? If not, why not? Are you a member here and yet inconsistent in your functional participation? See, this, this is about being faithful to the Lord. A local church has identifiable members and a local church has identifiable leaders. Hebrews 13 Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. 
for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So this passage in Hebrews teaches that there are people in the church who are identified as leaders to whom we are called to submit and who keep watch over our souls. One night I was at CC's Coffee doing some reading and, and I began to overhear a conversation that was happening of a group of, of people nearby and I, I couldn't help listening in. And, and when I did, I began to hear one comment after another just talking down on the institutional church. And, and evidently, th- these, these individuals had, had been hurt by church leaders, and, and I felt for them, I really did, but, but I was concerned about the way that they were talking about the local church. And so I introduced myself to them, and, and I pointed... <laughs> I've been mentored well by... Mr. Intrusion. <laughs> and so I pointed to the Bible that was on the table and said, hey, where do you guys go to church? And, and one of them said, we don't anymore. And another said, this is it. And so I said, okay, who's the pastor? And again, I got two answers. One of them said, we don't have any. And another said, Jesus is our pastor. And so we began to talk and... and I showed him 1 Peter 5 where Jesus is called the chief shepherd or the chief pastor. And yet in that same paragraph, Peter exhorts the elders to pastor the flock among them. You see, these people wanted to have church without any identifiable leaders. But that is a contradiction. God has determined that the church would function with leaders. It's his design. We saw in 1 Corinthians 12 that the body is made up with many members that have different roles. And every member of the body is equally important, and yet they do different things. And this ultimately reflects the nature and the character of God, because God is triune. He is a community of persons who are equally God, equally valuable, and yet they they have different functions, different roles. In the plan of redemption, the Father leads The Son submits and the Spirit helps. In the church, not everyone is gifted in the same way and not everyone has the same calling, but everyone is indispensable. James 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So not everyone in the church leads, but it's necessary that some Lead and, and the ones who lead are recognized as leaders. It's not some kind of generic, undefined group that people cycle in and out of. You know, next week you're the pastor, and the week after that, somebody else is. No, the leaders are identifiable. They have names. In Acts 20, Paul calls for the elders in Ephesus, and, and the whole church didn't step forward when he did that. There was a particular group. They knew who they were, and he exhorted them there. 1 Peter 5, Peter tells them, he exhorts the elders who are among you. In Titus 1, Paul tells Titus, appoint elders in every town. They are identifiable. And there are two primary offices in the church, and we won't get into a lot of details here, but, but there's the office of elder or pastor or overseer. That Those words are used interchangeably in, in the New Testament and 
And that office, these individuals are charged with caring for the flock, primarily through teaching and instruction, and, and they're the ones who govern in the church. They have authority in the context of the church. They lead. And there's the office of deacon. And, and deacons don't govern. You know, sometimes you see churches that have one pastor who does all the teaching, and yet he has no structural authority, and, and yet the church is run by a team of deacons who never do any teaching. And that's just not a biblical model. But, but the deacons are important. They care for the flock and the operations of the church in support of the elders. They minister the gospel in a very tangible way. And in our, in our church, covenant group leaders would, would function in this deacon role. And I know you guys have received their care and received their ministry. First Timothy 3 Titus 1 describes some of the qualifications that elders and deacons must meet in order to serve. Church leaders are a precious gift. And I hope you feel that. I I know you do. I feel that about our leaders. And and Ephesians 4.11 says that they are a personal gift to the church by the ascended Christ. Leaders are important. What happens when the local church gathers together? There was a a pressing question during the era of the Reformation of what are the marks of a true church? Okay, they had seen church done wrong. And so the question was, what distinguishes a true church from a false church? A, A living vibrant church from a spiritually dead church and and several things were considered but what was said to be the fundamental mark of a true church was the pure administration of the word they said that's what distinguishes the gathering of the people of god from everything else herman bovink writes that the reformation rightly sought the key mark of the church in the word of god cannot be doubted on the basis of scripture Without the word of God, after all, there would be no church. The word is truly the soul of the church. All ministry in the church is a ministry of the word. God gives his word to the church, and the church accepts, preserves, administers, and teaches it. It confesses it before God, before one another, and before the world in word and deed. In the one mark of the word, the others are included as further applications. Where God's word is rightly preached, there also the sacrament is purely administered, the truth of God is confessed in line with the intent of the Spirit, and people's conduct is shaped accordingly. We are, we are people of the book. We are the community of the word. It is the word that causes the church to grow and thrive. That's why in, in the book of Acts, when the author wants to say that the The church increased in its numbers and its fruit. It says the word of God increased and multiplied. It's the word that births and nurtures the church. The the gathering of the people of God is a gathering around the word. And really, everything we do here is a ministry of the word by the Holy Spirit. First, we come to hear the word in preaching. Several places in his letters, Paul kind of, clues us in on what he views the purpose of his ministry is. And and one of those is Colossians 1, 
verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. What's the purpose of your ministry in the church, Paul? It's, it's to make the word of God fully known. And, and the main way that that happens in the church is through preaching. And preaching God's word is open and his message to us is heralded. And we, we sit together literally under the word in submission to its authority over us. Preaching is the pinnacle of what we do here on a Sunday morning gathering. It is an act of worship. In the, in the 17th century, some Puritans got together to discuss what's to happen when the church gathers. And, and they put together a document called the Westminster Directory for Public Worship. And you think public worship, that must be about song arrangements. But but the main thing that's discussed in that book is the preaching of the Word of God. Often we, we refer to the singing time as the worship time. And it is, but it, it's a subset of the worship time. It's important. We'll talk about it next. But as, as Jeff Perswell, who provides theological leadership in Sovereign Grace, what, what he has said is that in singing, we address God. In preaching, God addresses us. Preaching is significant, and preaching builds the church. When Mike McKinley was about to step into that new ministry context, he, he asked his mentor, Mark Dever, for a key piece of advice. And, and Dever said, do everything you can to preach excellent sermons. Everything else will fall into place. And it was true. It reflected the aged Paul's charge to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And in 1 Timothy 4, until I come, devote yourself. What are you going to devote yourself to, Timothy? What are you going to invest in? What are you going to place your energy to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching? We come together to hear the word. We also come together to sing the word. Ephesians 5, 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. The, the largest book in the Bible is a book of songs that are designed for the covenant people. The Lord delights to hear his people sing to him. Singing isn't optional. It's not just something for the music types. It's something that God has designed us to do. And so all you are here bright and early for School of the Word, I, I know you're not likely to kind of travel into the service by the time with a third or fourth song or, or sometime during the announcements, but, but let's keep that up. Let's not be a people who devalue that. We want to value the singing to the Lord of the, the corporate gathering. And, and singing as taught in Ephesians, is an expression of our, of our corporate life. We join our voices together in one 
song. Ephesians calls it speaking to one another. You know, when we sing, we're talking not only to the Lord, but we're standing as a witness to each other. It's like we're saying the words that this song says are true. The Lord really is faithful. The cross really is powerful. Believe this. We sing the word. Singing serves truth. It communicates it in a fresh and memorable way. God is the great musician. And he has crafted music to serve the gathering of his people. We come together to pray the word. Christ said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. The church is called to be a community of intercessors. We, we join together and pray, thy kingdom come. We are a people who have been broken of our self-sufficiency by the gospel. That's what it means to be gospel people. And we turn and we look to God in dependence on Him to move. We, we bear the burdens of the body through prayer and we plead that God's righteousness and His mercy would reign in this world. But please don't miss the opportunity to be here at 8 a.m. Significant and powerful things happen in this room at 8 o'clock. We gather together to see the word in the sacraments or the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are visible demonstrations of the reality of the gospel expressed in the church. Look at what Mark Dever says. He says, the ordinances are the dramatic presentations of the gospel. They are the moving pictures that represent the spiritual realities of the gospel written and directed by Jesus himself. The bread and wine in the Lord's Supper portray Christ's body and blood broken and poured out for the remission of our sins. A visual reminder of Christ's cross work on our behalf. In the same way, baptism portrays our spiritual death to sin, our symbolic burial with Christ, and our resurrection with Him to new life. The ordinances, then, are when we see the gospel enacted and our participation in it dramatized. They are where the word of God's promise is spoken to us in tangible form. We touch and taste the bread and wine. We feel the waters of baptism. They are means of grace instituted by Jesus that God uses to assure his people of the trustworthiness of his gospel and the reality of our participation in it. And we gather together to live the word, to experience the corporate life of the gospel. And this means the gifts and the fruit and the fellowship of the spirit. 1 Corinthians 12. This is a beautiful statement. The eye cannot say to the hand, 
I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And this principle is most intimately experienced in our covenant groups. I recently joined a new group with Rebecca, but the covenant group that I was in for years had a a group of believers in it that were experiencing different seasons of life and suffering. There was a couple with a daughter who has avoided them for years. There was a man whose wife has resisted every effort he made to restore their broken relationship. There was a woman with Lou Gehrig's disease whose body was deteriorating and yet her faith in the Lord was being strengthened along with her ability in humor. There was a young couple who were facing infertility. And there was another married couple who was riding the roller coaster of job losses. And I learned so much from these believers. We had a shared life together. We prayed for one another. We laughed with one another. We got annoyed with one another. And we were being transformed with one another. There's a beauty to this one another aspect of of church life. Lastly, let's talk about the mission of the church. The church has a mission. Years ago, Pastor Keith said that, that people tend to think of the church as a cruise ship, but the way the Bible talks about it, it's much more like a battleship. You know, on a, on a cruise ship, we come to be served. We come to relax, to live a comfortable life. You know, we're, we're happy to be here, but we have our own agenda, the, our own things that we want to do. But on a battleship, orders are being shouted. There's a mission. Bullets are flying. There's work to do. There's needed effort and sacrifice. And we don't want to live a missionless existence in the church. So what is the mission of the church? Well, today, we have missional misfires aplenty. <laughs> is, it, is it primarily the mission of the church to make sure all, that, all the sick people in the world are healed and all the poor people in the world are rich? Is it mainly the mission of the church to ensure that the world lives environmentally friendly? Is it the mission of the church to ensure that society is reformed and and citizens live moral lives? Well, all these things might be good things that the church might participate in, but, but Christ has given us our marching orders. In Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, this is the basis for our mission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He owns it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of 
the age. The mission of the church is the great commission. It is a gospel mission. It is the proclamation of the gospel in the world and the making of disciples. And and the great commission is fulfilled through the church. See, the verbs here, these are plural imperatives. I don't individually fulfill the great commission. I'm called to evangelize. I'm called to make disciples. But I can't go out there and fulfill this on my own. This happens through the planting and developing of local churches. That's the context for disciple-making. Jesus tells them there to, to teach the disciples to observe all that He's commanded them. That means we need teachers. We need pastors to fulfill this. We need the life of the church. And I hope that we've seen this morning how much we need the life of the church. Again, this is not about Lakeview Christian Center. This is not about this church. This is about what the Bible teaches. But, But how appropriate it is that we would be together here this morning as we hear this. We have a a context that is ready for us to apply this. This morning, in the life of the church, let's live in the church and be the church. Let's pray. Father, we look to you. We look to your promise to be among us to the end of the age. Lord, the work of church ministry would be impossible if you had abandoned us to do this on our own. But your presence will be with us, and we have great faith for this. May we be a people who love your church and who are committed to it. In Jesus' name, amen.